Thank you, uh, Harpreet. I'm so excited to be here today. But before I go any further, I got to tell you, somebody gave me a water bottle, bottle that has pictures of my grandchildren. So, like, I'm totally into water right now because every time I take a drink, I see one of my grandkids. It's awesome. So, anyway, we're in this series on desires. And I hope that something's been touching your heart from this because this whole topic of desires is super, super important. And I appreciate the kind uh, affirmation of Harpreet. But I'm going to tell you at the very beginning a part of my story that I'm not proud of. And I think I've told pieces of this story before, but I've probably never told the whole meal deal. So, I'm going to kind of give you the whole meal deal for just a moment. They asked me to talk about desires today and specifically to talk about greatness. And on the one hand, as soon as I heard that, I had to like quash the whole pride thing. Like, oh, they want me to speak about greatness because, well, just, you know. So anyway, so I was thinking about that and I was thinking, no, no, no. It's about how do you deal with this issue of greatness and that desire for greatness. And I don't think the desire for greatness is a bad thing. In fact, recently I was talking to a student from Jessup uh, who's in a position in their life and uh, getting ready to to do some exciting things. I just said, look, I want to speak greatness over your life. I I think the issue is not greatness. It's what's the object or what's the direction of that greatness. So if you'll give me some great grace, uh, I want to just tell you a little bit of my story. But again, uh, just please hold this intention. Where I started, who I was is not who I believe God is making me into who I am. In other words, who I was and who I am and who I'm going to be, that's a process, that's a journey. How many of you know life is a journey, right? Okay, so I'm going to tell you the first part of my story. Uh, At age 17, because of some series of circumstances, I entered college and I was thinking about greatness. I had a desire for greatness, and I think we've got a slide for it. This is what I thought about in terms of greatness. Athletically, when I entered into college at age 17, I thought that I wanted to dominate you. Greatness for me in athletics was all about beating somebody and beating them badly. I don't know if you have anybody in your family who has a competitive streak. Uh, I have one deep within inside of me. I have to put it to death on a regular basis. Even board games, if I'm not careful, I can like light a torch in there that starts going nuclear and I can get very competitive. That's kind of in my natural self at age 17 athletically. I wanted to be great, which meant I want to dominate you. Number two, now intellectually, it meant that I wanted to crush you. I wanted to be able to be so in command of the facts, so in control of the information, so aware of the the panorama of stuff that when it came to an intellectual debate, I could crush you. That was what being great was all about for me at 17. Then emotionally, uh, through a series of circumstances, which I assure you I've worked out completely, and I now stand before you as a whole and complete individual with no emotional challenges whatsoever, emotionally at age 17... What that meant was that to be great, man, I can control you and I can keep you at a distance. You can't get too close to me because if you get too close to me, you might discover there's stuff inside of me. And I wanted to be so great emotionally that for me that meant being ordered and keeping people at a distance and controlling them so that they would never know the truth about what was inside of me. Uh, Then socially... Uh, Basically, my understanding of greatness means that I outwork you and I outachieve you and I get to the top of the ladder. And some of y'all might have been at the lower rungs, but I'm going to get above you because greatness is all about being able to outwork and outachieve you. Now, how many of you hearing all this go like, whoa, dude, at 17, you were quite the prince. You know, you were like just really the catch. You were this amazing guy. Well, At age 17, that was the young man who sat down in my first week of college in a class. And I remember it like it was yesterday. 
I went into Old Testament class. Some of you have heard me tell bits of this story before. It was Old Testament surveys in my first semester of college. It was a relatively small school, smaller than Jessup. And I went into that class, and I was the son of a Baptist preacher. And as a son of a Baptist preacher, I didn't know a lot, except I knew that I needed to bring my Bible to school. So I brought my Bible to Old Testament survey class. I put it down on the desk. I had back then, we had paper instead of a laptop. So I had my piece of paper out. I was ready to go. Professor stood up within the first five minutes of class, said the following words. There might have been an Abraham. There might, exactly. That is exactly how I responded. What the heck? And so I, I didn't know any better, folks. I was just kind of wired for amperage. So I raised my hand, said, excuse me. And I said to the professor who had a PhD from a respected school, I said, excuse me, what do you mean there might have been an Abraham? I got my Bible right here. It says, God told Abram, that was his name before he received the promise. God told Abram, go ye therefore to a land. I'll show you. What do you mean there might have been an Abraham? And the professor said, well, so why do you believe that? And I thought, oh, okay, I got it. I got it. This is like college now. I'm supposed to be able to do this sort of repartee and, you know, remember intellectually, I will crush you. So what happened was I started telling her about how I knew about Abraham and Genesis and the whole Bible, Genesis, Revelation, inspired by God, all truth. And the professor said the following words. I remember it like it was yesterday. He said, Abraham is a questionable historical figure. In fact, many of you in this room probably believe, based on what Jesus said and what others have said, that Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. But that's not true. We know Moses existed historically, but we don't think Moses really wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, even if Jesus said that. And the reason we know that is because writing didn't exist at the time of Moses. So Jesus was accommodating himself to the ignorance of his hearers. In fact, the textbook we're going to be using in this particular class was written by a PhD from Princeton University. And you'll discover in the first few chapters that we're going to read that everything you've believed about Abraham and Moses and writing and the words of Jesus, you're all wrong. You're going to get all those false beliefs taken apart. Now I'm 17 and I want to be great. But as far as I'm concerned, this is war. I remember like it was yesterday, I went home, my dad's a Baptist preacher, it's been a long journey, we didn't have any money for school, God provided the doorway for me to get in that school, but I was hearing that on my first day of class, and I remember these words coming out of my mouth. I went home, opened the door to my house, my dad was there, I looked at my dad and I said, Dad, I cannot go back to that college. He said, why, what's wrong? I said, Dad, those people are heretics and they're going to hell. (laughs) I was not a man with subtle opinions at age 17. The next year of my life, I spent multiple class periods arguing with my professors. And my professors had PhDs from advanced universities, and I have to be very frank with you, looking back as a 58-year-old, that 17, 18-year-old kid got crushed. I didn't crush anybody in that first year. I got crushed. I got so whooped, I got so overwhelmed, I had those PhD professors making me think I was an idiot. And it was an agonizing year. And in the process of that year, I began to go to God and I was desperate. Thankfully, I didn't run from God and I have to sadly tell you, a lot of my friends in the classes I was in, they ran from God. 
They accepted hook, line, and sinker, what those particular professors were selling in that particular context. And they abandoned their faith in the Bible and the God of the Bible. And through the process of that first year, I felt like Jesus spoke to me. I had never seen Jesus, hadn't had experiences where he spoke in audible ways, but I felt like Jesus spoke to me. And he said, John, you have to press into me. And so I did. And I worked hard. And I spent every year, that first year and the second year, studying. And I would study what was assigned in the textbooks. And then I would go after not only what was in the textbooks, but I would go after studying what's called apologetics material. And I would learn about the historicity of the scriptures. For instance, let me just tell you this. My Princeton PhD authored textbook, written in the 1970s. I was in school less than 10 years after this textbook was printed that said Moses couldn't write, have written the Old Testament, even the first five books, even though Jesus said that, that that was a historical inaccuracy and Jesus was simply accommodating himself to the ignorance of his audience. What I was to discover when I read not only that textbook, but all the other apologetics materials is that there had actually been a discovery in the late 40s, early 1950s. An ancient legal code called the Code of Hammurabi written in an ancient Babylonian language, was a complex legal code, it was a cylinder. And that complex legal code was approximately 700 years before Moses existed. So not only did writing exist at the time of Moses, complex legal codes existed at the time of Moses. And my Princeton PhD professor who wrote that book and the professor who was teaching me on the basis of that book were wrong and dead wrong. But it took me a year and a half or two as a 17, 18, 19-year-old to kind of learn in and lean in. And i got to tell you, something else changed inside of me. My definition of greatness was, I will crush you. I will dominate you. I will overwhelm you. And what I experienced in that first two years of college is my definition of greatness did not lead anybody to Jesus. In fact, I wrote this down. I've never wrote, written this before, but I wrote this down in preparing for this talk. It took me a long road to recognize that I was living a life that was demeaning to others. I was winning nobody to Jesus, and I was leaving my soul empty. I, I had to figure out what it meant to be great. And the way that worked for me and my spirit was that I learned about truth and grace. And that the combination of them is where transformational reality takes place. So today I want to talk to you about being great. I don't want you to sort of put out and snuff out the embers of the fire of greatness that's within you. I want you to stoke those flames. I believe God has called you to greatness. But I believe the pathway to greatness for a follower of Jesus Christ is to be full of truth and to be full of grace. And there's an order to those. Last night in this room, there were about 700 folks who were gathered together to talk about religious freedom and religious liberty and what happens in this crazy world that we live in. How do people who have faith engage in the public square but do so with a civil voice? I think it's about truth and grace, and there's an order to those words I'll tell you about in just a few moments. Several years ago, a friend of mine who knew my journey, who knew my story, he'd become a good friend, he said, John, could you come talk to our church and talk specifically about this question? Now, I didn't make up this title. I didn't go after this title. He said, I want you to talk about do, the question, do smart people still follow Jesus? 
So I don't want you to think I invented that talk so that I could give it. My friend assigned me that topic. But in the context of that topic, I gave him a sentence. I think we've got a slide for it. It says this. Smart people who follow Jesus have made a specific decision that objective truth does exist. That God has revealed himself and that the Bible is God's written revelation. And that Jesus is God revealing himself in human form. Those beliefs have consequences. I lived by the coast of California for a number of years and I had the privilege to go sailing with folks. And sailing people have all kinds of regulations and requirements and they know how to steer their craft. And in the context of that, I learned about how they navigate to the horizon. I learned about the North Star and a number of things. I just have elementary knowledge on that. But I will tell you this based on those experiences from the coast of California. Everybody has some form of horizon that they're sailing for. Everybody has some kind of North Star that's guiding them. And I want to say to you this morning that truth matters. Truth matters. It, we live in a culture that believes that truth is dispensable, that truth is arbitrary, that it's relative, and that it's all bound up in your own experience. And your generation and the one that's following is experiencing for the first time ever a world that believes that truth is not just how I define it, but how I experience it. And that truth is literally always relative at the level of individual experience. I believe there is such a thing as truth with a capital T. Now, I was born in a Baptist church. Is there anybody else who was raised in Baptist churches? Is that okay to admit to? I was raised in Baptist churches. And before I got married, growing up in Baptist churches, I had never experienced a stew. Anybody here eat stew as kids growing up? Did you eat stew? Well, what happened for me is I got married, and I got married to a woman whose family knows how to make stew. Now, if you would have asked me before I got married what stew, I would have said stew is when you take a bunch of vegetables, maybe a little bit of meat, you throw it in a pot of water, and you just leave it to cook all day long. And then when they ladle it out, it's basically like mush. That's what I thought about stew. But then I had stew from somebody who knew how to make stew. And what I learned is that every single ingredient in that stew matters. And that the seasonings you add to the stew, if you're an expert stew maker, that it matters. And that the seasonings actually bring out the individual tastes. Well, I want to say something about my Baptist background. And I want you to know that I love and appreciate and deeply honor my Baptist background. I'm thankful for it. But if you were to describe my experience as a child growing up in Baptist churches, I would say this. The stew of my Baptist life was full of truth. I learned the Bible. I got the truths of the Bible in my head, in my heart, in my hands. I could crush people with truth. The Baptist stew that I grew up with was a stew full of truth with occasional dashes of grace. But I've come to understand that's not the Jesus way. That's not the Jesus way. Not only does truth matter, but grace matters. In John 1, 14, verses 16 and 18, there's a passage of scripture that talks about Jesus. 
It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's talking about Jesus. From the fullness of his grace, we've all received one blessing after another. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Truth matters. But my spiritual foundations were all truth and a tiny little dash of grace. And I don't believe that's the Jesus way. A man named Oz Guinness has this great quote that I've been using for years because I think it's so powerful. He's a British guy and he says this, the problem with Christians in America is not that Christians aren't where they should be. The problem is that they're not what they should be right where they are. Do you ever wonder why our world finds it often easy to reject Christians and Christianity and even, yes, Jesus? When the truth is, is that if you love Jesus and you know Jesus, he is not just full of truth and he's not just full of grace. He's full of grace and truth with the words being in that order. If you recall the passage, it says the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. It took me years, like maybe a decade and a half, to fully grapple with what that means to be full of grace and full of truth. See, I've known all kinds of people in my life who are full of truth and hardly any grace. On the other hand, I've also known a lot of folks who are full of grace, like almost boundaryless, but have seemingly no truth. The Jesus way is not a stew of truth with a dash of grace or a stew of grace with a little dash of truth. The Jesus way is to be full of grace and truth in such a way that it's transformational when you encounter it. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, the apostle Paul said it this way, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. You know the old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. That's true. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. But you can give that horse some salt. And if you do, it'll make him thirsty. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink, but you can give him salt and make him thirsty. So my question is, How do we do what Colossians 4 is saying and make people thirsty for the good news of Jesus? I guarantee you the answer to that form of greatness is not to be full of truth with very little grace. And it's not to be full of grace and no truth. It's to do the Jesus thing. Now some of you watch what I do on social media. I'm just going to be honest. I'm on Twitter I'm on Facebook, and I'm on Instagram largely so I can see pictures every night of my grandkids. That's my way of using social media. But I'm very active on Twitter, and I've got lots of friends that I engage with on Twitter on political subjects. Facebook is a lot more personal, and I know Facebook has gotten to a place where the average age of the Facebook user is post 40, but just stick with me for a minute. I'm not on some of the platforms you're on. And some of you are going, 
Thank God he's not. So anyway, the, real, the deal is I use Twitter, Facebook. Recently, I had a series of interactions on Facebook on a very controversial subject. It was a subject where there was all kinds of disagreement between Christians and people who are outside the household of faith. And I tried not to stir up too much controversy. I did a little. But I was mostly trying to just watch the comments and make sure that people were being gracious to one another. And one particular guy was just flamethrowing. And he was flamethrowing in such a way that I felt like other people on the feed who were going back and forth were just getting singed. And I finally said to this person, look, dude, you're done. I'm not letting you cannibalize the people on this feed. Now, I'm not telling you this person's name on purpose, but I will tell you what happened after that. A couple of days later, that person wrote me and said, hey, I was really ticked that you shut me down from that conversation. But I've come to believe that what you said was right, that people are watching. People are watching in the world the way Christians treat one another and the way we treat people who are not in the household of faith. Last night with 700 people here, right in the front row, seated right next to me, was an Islamic leader. In the next row was a Sikh, an Indian leader. And you think about the various backgrounds. There were a number of people of other faiths in this room last night. As we talked about hard stuff. How do you be a person of faith in a really rough society? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gave us one answer. He said, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who's in heaven. I believe that God is calling us to greatness. He's calling us to be full of salt and light. He's calling us to be full of grace and truth. I believe he wants greatness in us, but I think greatness looks like being full of grace and truth. In just a few moments, I'm going to give you my revised definition at age 58 that I couldn't have understood at age 17. I have a revised definition of greatness. Early on, it was about domination. It was about control. It was about achievement. I have a different definition today. But to me, that definition rises and falls based on being like Jesus, full of grace and full of truth. And by the way, I say this all the time when I teach about leadership. I'm an imperfect practitioner of everything I tell you. If you've been around Jessup for any length of time, you've seen me fail. And you will see me fail again. If you hang in there with me, you'll see me fail more than once. Twice, three, it's just going to keep going. Because only Jesus is perfectly full of grace and truth. My question is, how do I treat you when you fail? How do you treat me? when I fail? How do we treat people outside the household of faith when they fail? I hope we treat people full of grace and truth. Very quickly, I have a slide, gonna have, we have six things on it. Six things I think you can do. I think you can do one of these a week. One of these a week from now to the end of the semester and think about what does it mean to be full of grace and truth. Number one, eyes on him. Eyes on Jesus, not on them. My experience is the more we focus on other people, the harder it is to be full of grace and truth. But the more I focus on Jesus, I've been in radically, ridiculously hard conversations with people who are angry and said, Jesus, Jesus, Je well, now I'm, they don't know I'm saying that, by the way. I'm just looking at them, we're but inside my heart and in my spirit, I'm just praying, Jesus, don't let anything come out of my mouth 
Don't let anything come out of my mouth that's about me. Jesus, help me be like you right now in this conversation. Two weeks ago, I was in my office. I was in a difficult conversation. I don't remember the topic, but I was forming a sentence that I promise you was not pleasing to Jesus. Now, maybe that doesn't happen to you, but it happens to me. Sometimes I have meetings and there's difficult subjects and sentences are in my head and I want to deliver them. But I got that moment where I say, okay, Jesus, before I let this thing out of my mouth, just let me pass through the Jesus filter. Number two. Honor all people as made in the image of God. That would really help a lot of us on social media. Honor all people as made in the image of God. Number three, treat people with kindness and civility. That's what Colossians said. Let your speech be seasoned with grace. I can lead a horse to water, you can't make him drink, but you can give him salt. Grace is like salt. It creates a desire. When people see grace from you, when they're expecting meanness and anger and condemnation and judgment, when you show them grace... It's not saying that truth doesn't matter, but you show them grace. Jesus was full of grace and truth, equal and unblemished, either side. Number four, love people that Jesus puts in front of you. There might be somebody in front of you that you didn't want in front of you. There might be somebody in your dorm that you didn't want to talk to. There might be somebody in your class that you were trying to avoid. Each person is an opportunity to show the love of Jesus. Number five. Pray for people whenever you can. And I, I mean like really pray. So very quick, last night I'm in this reception. We did a reception afterwards. I'm in this reception last night. And a woman, I think she was late 60s, early 70s. I know her, but not super well. And uh, she was talking about it. And I heard about some medical stuff going on in her life. And she told me about this medical condition. And it's really serious. And I said, well, would you be okay if I prayed for you? Now we're in a reception. We've got 70, 100 people around us. And, and I said, would you be okay if I prayed for you? And she looked up at me and she said, you know, she said, I've told a lot of people I would pray for them. But to be honest, now this is a woman in her 60s or 70s, this is what she said. She said, I don't ever remember anybody saying they would pray for me. So I have one of those God moments where I just thought, I'm, I'm going for it. So I said, I know this may sound a little strange. Could I pray for you right now? She has a serious medical condition. It has the C word in it, cancer. And I said, can I pray for you right now? And she looked at me and she said, uh, Okay. Now, we got people milling around, they're eating their lemon bars, and I'm on a diet, and I'm trying not to covet the limit bars, but I'm just frustrated about that. And so they're eating their, limit bar, their lemon bars, and powdered sugar's falling on the floor, not that I noticed. But anyway, so I'm, here we are, and this woman says, yeah, it's okay, so I prayed for her. And I prayed that the Holy Spirit would touch her. And that Jesus would come all over her and that he would guide. Oh, thankful for the doctors, thankful for medicines. But I know Jesus has the power to heal. And I prayed that he would touch her right then and there. And I'm going to stay in touch with that lady. And you might get the chance to pray for somebody today in a hallway. You might pray for somebody at a store. You might pray for somebody in a park. We have these athletic teams at Jessup and they're awesome and amazing. One of the things that just so stirs my heart and it's hard, folks, is after the matches, after the games, they'll circle up with the opposing team whenever they can, and they'll pray. Now i got to tell you, 17-year-old John Jackson, college John Jackson, and have nothing to do with that. Because it is about crushing people. It is not about praying with your opponent. And what I love at Jessup, at least in that part of our athletics, is that we are going after saying, wait a minute, there's, there's a higher calling. So the last thing is share your testimony and why you believe, but do it with gentleness and respect. When I was at my college, 
I was there about three years and at my college, nobody came to Jesus that first year because I was about crushing people. And my second year, God was getting a hold of me and I was learning some stuff and I was trying to, I learned this verse in 1 Peter, gentleness and respect. By the end of my second year and the beginning of my third year, I had four or five of my friends who prayed to receive Jesus as their savior, not because of me, but because of the full of grace and full of truth that drew him to him. So last slide. I want to give you my new definition of greatness. Greatness is living like Jesus, full of grace and truth, in such a way that people experience the love and mercy of his presence when they're in your presence. I played basketball for a while, and I was never very good. I got two boys who are amazing, way, way better than me. I watched people play ball. The, the women, the men here at Jess, they're, they're awesome. I was no way ever that good. But I like to play ball. And there was a period in time playing ball where people go, like, I want to be like Mike. Be like Mike. Michael Jordan. 23. I mean, just did stuff on the court that's insane. And I just want you to know that being great isn't, to me, being like Mike. It's not like being like a star. It's not like being the top of the field. For me, greatness is all about being like Jesus. And I fail every day. But the desire of my heart at 17, when I entered into college, was to dominate, control, outwork, outachieve. And the desire of my heart at age 58 is to be like Jesus, full of grace and truth every moment of the day. So that people experience his love and mercy. And experience like being in his presence when they're in mine. My prayer for you is that will be your desire for greatness at a way earlier age than I had it in mine. Let me pray for you. Jesus, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in this room. I thank you for the folks who are excelling. I just, I pray greatness over them. Lord, they're, they're going to excel in their fields. They're going to go after their academic disciplines. They're going to go after their athletic endeavors. They're going to go after their artistic pursuits, and they will be great, but they will be great for your glory. It will not be about them dominating. It will not be about them achieving. It will be about your glory and your goodness, and I pray that they will bring your love and kindness, your mercy, full of grace and full of truth in every atmosphere in which they walk. And God, if they do that, I believe the world can change in a way that honors your name. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your truth and for your love. Amen. Hey, God bless you. Have a great day.